So no matter how the Europeans decide to respond in the fall, if retaliation and not negotiation will be the outcome, this will escalate transatlantic trade tensions to new heights. What role will trade play in the global economy of the future? Can the multilateral rules-based trading system survive? Or will nationalism and protectionism lead to a world of trade barriers and trading blocks? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2020, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to this next podcast conversation for the AIG Global Trade Series 2020. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. And today's conversation is about the question, does the pandemic make an EU-US trade collision less or more likely? In other words, we're going to be talking about the state of the transatlantic trade relationship. The U.S. and the EU are each other's most important trade partner. Together, they form the largest and wealthiest global market, with overall trade in goods and services worth over $1.3 trillion annually, or phrased differently, $3 billion worth of trade in goods and services every day. Commission President von der Leyen earlier this year said she would like to see a U.S.-EU trade deal within a matter of weeks. Now, we all know that hasn't happened. Instead, at the moment, the possibility of a trade deal between the EU and the US seems a rather long way away. Instead, we're talking about a significant degree of friction in the trade relationship. Tariffs on aluminium exports from the EU or carousel tariffs keep the EU busy. President Trump, it seems, likes to negotiate with the threat of punitive tariffs, while the EU busy trying to stave them off. Now, trying to make sense of all of this, I'm joined by three experts in the transatlantic trade field. First of all, I'm joined by Marianne Schneider-Petzinger. Marianne is Senior Research Fellow in the US and the Americas program at Chatham House in London, where she works on the nexus of political and economic issues facing the transatlantic relationship. Secondly, I'm joined by Andreas Escher. Andreas is the director of the Megatrends program at the Bertelsmann Stiftung. And finally, from Washington, D.C., I'm joined by Marie Kasparek. Marie is the director of the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University. Welcome to all three of you. Now, what I'd like to do, with your permission, is to explore the current state of the EU-U.S. trade relationship before moving to possible solutions And I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball and give me your prognosis for the next couple of months and also what happens on the other side of the U.S. elections. Now, when we talk about the current state of the U.S.-EU trade relationship, it seems like the old Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, seems an appropriate place to start. I'd like to focus first on the good. Where are the U.S. and the EU actually cooperating? What have they achieved? Marianne, can I ask you to chip in on this first? Sure. I mean, first of all, you know, starting with the good is that the U.S. and the EU are still each other's most important trade and investment partners. 
And then based on that, also the US and the EU launched negotiations for a more limited deal last year. And the talks, you know, have been ongoing. They haven't really met much progress, but I think there is still an element of at least they are negotiating. Now, I think where there is really perhaps element of real progress happening is with regards to shared concerns vis-a-vis China, for example. And on this front, I think despite the differences over the Trump administration's actions, there are a lot of shared concerns when it comes to China's trade policy and practices, whether that's intellectual property theft, forced technology transfer, etc. And on that front, the US, the EU and Japan have made progress to address you know, non-market economies and, you know, not singling out China necessarily, but certainly to tackle some of China's trade policies and practices. And that does spill over into WTO reform efforts as well, where there have been ongoing efforts despite huge differences between the United States and the EU on what is actually needed to bring the World Trade Organization up to speed and into the 21st century. And there was also this deal that the former commission president, Jean-Claude Juncker, agreed with President Trump, right? What happened to that? Exactly. That was in in 2018. Both sides essentially said that they were going to put the relationship on a new level. And that actually then predated the launch of the negotiations that I mentioned already. But um, again, from the EU side, the negotiating mandate is much, much more limited. So you're not you know, talking about a renewal of the transatlantic trade and investment partnership. But I think the key challenge here is that both the US and the EU have vastly different ideas of what ultimately should be achieved. And for the EU, for example, it's quite clear that agriculture is not part of the negotiating mandate. And from the US side, I think that is a big no, and particularly if any deal would need to be ratified by US Congress, if it doesn't include agriculture, I don't think it's going to go very far. Right. So that brings us to the bad. Marie, what are the main trade irritants you see in the relationship as it is? Thanks, Rem. Well, I think just really circling back to your introductory statement about the positive economic ties of the transatlantic relationship is the transatlantic relationship is just no longer as solid as those economic ties would suggest, right? So we have, I would say, three broad areas of trade irritants, kind of (laughs) the bad and the ugly already combined, if we want to go back to your film alliteration, one being the Boeing Airbus and the carousel tariffs, then the 232 investigations, mostly focused on steel and aluminium, and then the 301 investigations being the digital tax. Maybe I'll start with Boeing and Airbus case and the carousel tariffs that resulted out of that. For me, the Boeing Airbus case really is the case that keeps on giving. That's what it's known for in the United States. It's been a friction point for the past 15 years, and it's just come to a head during the Trump presidency by happen chance, really, because now is the time that the WTO made a decision on one part of the issue, and we are expecting to have a second ruling on the European retaliation in the fall. So really, this is not the general Trump presidency kind of tariff, but it is indeed a tariff that is totally legally legitimate by WTO standards. It has come about because of a WTO appellate body ruling, which I think is really important to differentiate. But however, it is the biggest ruling that the WTO has ever given. It is 
on 7.5 billion of EU goods in retaliation to EU aircraft subsidies for Airbus. But again, it is legal under WTO law. What we've seen is the carousel tariffs last week on August 12th, U.S. Trade Representative Lighthizer actually announced that the U.S. will switch certain tariffs on certain products to others, which mainly was a shift from products or tariffs on products from the U.K. and Greece to products from Germany and France, which obviously, and I, I'm, I'm sure Andreas will talk about that more later on, has not been seen favorable by Germany. But by and large, it could have been a lot worse, where I don't see the Boeing Airbus case as the ugly, but just as the bad, because actually we could have seen deterioration or escalation already last week. But in fact, Lighthizer decided to not raise the tariffs, but keep them as is, and then just carousel them around to other sectors. And this is something that actually U.S. law requires from USTR to review every 180 days if they want to raise the tariffs or if they want to potentially involve a different sector. So actually, theoretically, that means every 180 days, another industry totally independent from the aircraft industry could be hit with tariffs in the EU, which obviously creates a lot of uncertainty. This could become ugly in the fall, potentially, if we don't see a settlement and if the EU or, you know, depending on how the EU will retaliate once they have a final number. So we are expecting for the EU to get about $5 billion in retaliation for their case against Boeing. And that means $7.5 billion from the US side versus $5 billion on the EU side. But that is being topped off by an additional potential $4 billion that the EU Commission could use from an older WTO case against the Foreign Sales Corporation in 2002. So if you count those together, actually the European Commission will have a very strong negotiating position in the fall. And I think escalation is better either way. So no matter how the Europeans decide to respond in the fall, if retaliation and not negotiation will be the outcome, this will escalate transatlantic trade tensions to new heights. Well, it seems like such an irrational thing to do in a larger international context. We're talking about kind of beggar thy neighbor tariffs. Like, oh, my tariffs are bigger than your tariffs and therefore I've won. Whereas the context is that the US and the EU also need to cooperate on that other big challenge in trade terms, which is the rise of China. And just sitting where I sit in Europe, it seems like it's a very hard sail on the side of Washington to convince the Europeans to join forces in responding to the challenge of China, while at the same time, there is this tit-for-tat tariff war taking place. Andreas, how do you see that? Well, the relation to China and the kind of different extent to which a single country is exposed to China makes all the difference from my perspective. So it will be really hard to get German actively on the side of those who want to stop China by very aggressive means, simply because the exposition of German industry to China is huge. The company car manufacturer does more than 50% of its profits in China. It's by far their biggest customer. And this makes it really, really hard to kind of follow any aggressive move against China. 
And unfortunately, and this is a new feeling, at least for my generation, that Germany finds itself in the corner of the ugly. For example, three big, big issues, in which is kind of hurting the transatlantic relation between Germany and the U.S., And one is the old subject of the payments to NATO or or the payments into defense budget, uh, where Germany has agreed in 2006 and even again in 2014 at the NATO summit in Wales that it will rise its expenditure to the agreed upon 2% level in due time. And it's falling short. It's now at about 1.3 percentage of the gross domestic product. And so it requires another 50% increase in the total expenditure of defense uh, to meet this goal. Uh, We are far from that. And this is an open kind of wound and puts Germany in a very, very difficult negotiation position. That's one thing. Second thing, North Stream. I mean, it's crazy if you realize that U.S. senators sending letters, threatening letters, threatening Eastern German town of 10,000 people to kind of block it and destroy its economic base. For those who haven't been following this, Nord Stream 2 is this pipeline that connects Russia to Germany, and it's under threat of sanctions by the United States. They are already. And it's it's highly political. Moreover, since, since the former German chancellor, uh, Gerhard Schröder, plays an active role in this whole thing. Really, really tricky. And, and the failure on the German side is that they underestimated the criticism, not just by the US, also by the European partners, and finds itself in a very tricky and difficult position now. That's second. Third, the trade balance issue. I mean, this is not something which came up with the Trump administration. This is an old confrontation between both sides that Germans' persistent trade surplus is going on and, and nobody seemed to do anything about it. And this is, again, not just American and German-American problem, but also with regard to the European partners. And if there is a difficult position of Germany with the European partners, it's, it makes life much more difficult within the European Union to try and come up with a common position, including Germany as its economically most important member. So this is a really, really kind of difficult mixture. And in a time where you started this podcast off by saying, how far does this pandemic lead us to further confrontation in a time of the pandemic where all these aspects become even more important, where crisis just starts to kind of trickle down into every aspect of the economy. It's much more important to get a common solution and at the same time, much more difficult than it it used to be. So this all together is really, really kind of a difficult blend. Let's pause for a second, though, on the issue regarding Germany, because I think you're right. There is an element of bilateralization, I would say, on the side of the United States government of the U.S.-EU broader trade relationship. It seems to me as if it's been subject to narrowing it to a U.S.-German back and forth. And I think you've hit the nail on the head, Andreas, by pointing to a number of other issues that relate to that. I just want to bring in Marianne and Marie, how they see that. Is that true? Has the US-EU relationship been relegated to a bilateral Berlin-Washington dialogue? And if so, how bad is that? Also looking towards the future. Well, I think you know, the bilateralization of the um, trade relationship is certainly you know something that the Trump administration has aimed for. I think also the transactional approach of linking trade to non-trade issues, in particular security, is another element that we've touched upon already. 
But I think also in the case of Germany, what really comes down to is the issue of autos and cars in particular that have been a thorn in President Trump's size. And that very much also, I think, links to the U.S. tariffs on on steel and aluminum, but also, again, the ongoing threat of um, having tariffs on cars and automobile imports. Again, that is something that certainly falls into that category of the bad and potentially ugly that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, Marie, go ahead. The U.S. trade deficit in autos and auto parts, if we put that into numbers, is $200 billion, which is roughly one quarter of the global U.S. merchandise trade deficit. And Germany is obviously a very strong economy, especially pre-pandemic, is very export-oriented compared to the United States. So obviously the trade deficit with Germany is a lot bigger compared to a lot of the other European countries with the United States. So just by the numbers, there is an obvious discrepancy and difference with Germany. There are, like Marianne and Andrea said, the obvious non-trade related irritants that are particularly strong with Germany. But I think the threat of car tariffs is particularly targeted at Germany just by the fact that Germany is a big car exporter. And because it is a big part of the trade deficit with the United States. So yes, we could see this as a target to Germany. I think it definitely is That is true. But on the other hand, it is also a natural sector to target for Trump in general, if you just look at the numbers. So I think it's both. It's Germany, but it's also the sheer numbers of why that sector is targeted. Obviously, it is not targeted in a rational way from the European point of view, based on the 232 sections that uh, Mariana mentioned. It is for both the steel and the car terrorists. Maybe we briefly just explain to the audience what 232 tariffs actually are. Section 232 is part of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962 and gives the executive branch virtually unchecked authority to impose or increase car tariffs on imports that are thought to threaten U.S. national security. And that is, you know, to just give you an example, between the creation of the law in 1962 and 2016, so before Trump came into office, This Section 232 investigations were conducted more than two dozen times, but presidential action was taken only six times. In 2018 alone, President Trump imposed tariffs twice under Section 232. What is particularly different now compared to the previous use is that nowadays the administration is also imposing tariffs on close military allies of the United States. And by definition, really characterizing the EU as a security threat to the US, which obviously is not voting well and not doing any good for the relationship with the EU. There's one other trade issue which we haven't touched upon, and that's this plan by the commission to introduce a carbon border tax. And that's actually what I was thinking of when I thought about the ugly not necessarily Germany. Um, This, in my mind, has the potential of really being somewhat explosive in the context of the bilateral trade relationship. I don't know how you see this, Marianne. There is still a lot of question marks on that front, but what we know so far is that the EU is considering to impose a carbon border adjustment mechanism by the end of 2021. 
And essentially, that would be a tax that would reflect the amount of carbon emissions that can be attributed to goods being imported in the EU, and that would help to reduce the risk of carbon leakage, or in other words, ensuring that the EU's green objectives are not undermined by countries and um, producers simply relocating their production to countries that have less ambitious climate policies. We don't really know how this mechanism will be designed. The European Commission is currently exploring options. And then that obviously leads to the big question of, is it also compliant with the EU's WTO commitments? But again, until we know what that mechanism will ultimately look like, That is hard to see. Again, a lot will also depend for the transatlantic relationship and how that kind of plays out on that front. What happens in the United States when we come to the November elections? I think it's quite clear that if we see a second term Trump presidency, this plan by the EU for a carbon water adjustment tax could really be another source, another irritant in the transatlantic relationship. It could look quite different if we have a Biden presidency because um, Vice President Biden has also vaguely hinted at introducing a carbon water adjustment tax. There could, under Biden administration, perhaps be more room for transatlantic collaboration. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about does the pandemic make an EU-US trade collision less or more likely? At a time when the multilateral rules-based order is under threat, conversations about global trade and its contribution to prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020. This series of podcasts is brought to you by AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, the Bertelsmann Stiftung, is knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break, and I'm speaking with Marianne Schneider-Petzinger. Secondly, I'm joined by Andreas Escher. And finally, from Washington, D.C., I'm joined by Marie Kasparek. Let me just flag for our listeners that we have one of our AIG Global Trade Series 2020 podcasts is completely dedicated to the EU's border tax adjustment mechanism proposal with uh, Geneviève Ponce and Pascal Lamy, which I can highly recommend. Marie, sorry, I interrupted you. I totally agree with Marianne that I would call the carbon border tax a potential ugly, but another potential ugly that I think could have the potential to remain ugly no matter who will seize the seat of presidency in the United States in November is the digital tax. I just, and I would love to hear the European side on this, but from my point of view right now, there's just no easy way out here from the US point of view. It's a very, very highly disputed tax that Europe Europe is, and especially countries, for example, uh, France and Italy 
are trying to put on specifically U.S. conglomerates like Apple or Facebook. And the U.S. Commerce Department has already completed an investigation at the end of 2019 and, to no surprise, has found France's digital tax illegal or you know, not justified under Section 301. So it constitutes a discrimination against U.S. tech companies from the U.S. point of view from the current administration. I know that crisis has been averted for now, where France has agreed to postpone collecting the tax in response to the U.S. agreeing not to retaliate. And they are trying to find a solution at the OECD. But we've seen just recently that the U.S. walked out of those negotiations. And even though some of the companies that would be taxed in Europe are showing signs of understanding and would not be obviously opposed to those taxes and understand that the economy just has to evolve and that the current system is just not set up to account for this. The U.S. just is currently not showing many signs of a real solution. So it could potentially escalate by the end of the year if no solution is found at the OECD level or even beyond that. I just think it has the potential to remain a very ugly and contentious issue for some time. I agree. It's interesting you mentioned that this would be a potential irritant in the relationship, regardless of who is in the White House after the next elections, whereas the carbon border tax might actually be something that another U.S. president thinks differently about. Can I just ask you to look into your crystal ball and sketch for me the scenarios we should be thinking about as we slowly but surely move towards the November elections. What are the options for the US-EU trade relationship we should take into consideration? Perhaps, Andreas, can I give you uh, the floor first? I think starting with, with the last two topics, I think it's, they will not disappear. So I think if a new administration will come into power, we will have to find ways to negotiate all this. And I think both elements. And I'm not too familiar with the US situation, but I'm wondering how far the taxation of Silicon Valley is not also at least a kind of hidden agenda or on a hidden agenda of the Biden administration, that they have to find ways to address this issue of multinational digital firms kind of escaping taxation in a really, really grand scale. And even more so, Due to the present crisis, the, the, the debt burdens uh, will kind of explode uh, over the next years and taxation will become even more important than it used to be. So I'm not, I'm not fully sure whether they don't, in a, in a hidden way, expecting the Europeans to put this on the table and that they use this as a lever against their own companies to do something about it. So this might be a positive case. If Biden would win, many things would kind of change less than the Europeans might hope for. If it's not called America first anymore, but by American, the difference is not that big, maybe different in terms of how it's put, uh, more diplomatic, not so spontaneous and all that. But in substance, it's pretty much the same. But I guess that the ability to negotiate stability in terms of process might help significantly. And this is what I think is lacking with this present administration still, that for many issues, you don't find a proper partner within the U.S. administration, somebody to talk to, somebody to give you sufficient answers. And I'm hopeful that this would change. Marie, do you agree? I think 
maybe I take it a brief step back and differentiate between before the election and after the election, because I think there are certain developments that we all touched upon throughout the conversation about what could happen between now and until the elections, right? I think it is unlikely to see a very positive development, but it is also pretty unlikely to see a full escalation ahead of the elections. I think that would be my bottom line and that the answer lies really somewhere in the middle, but clouds are continuing to build. So I think from a US point of view, it is really, really important to keep in mind that right now, everything is about election. Election probabilities are the only thing that anyone cares about in D.C. right now. So we don't care about values. We don't care about the allies or anything else. Right now, everybody's focused on America and by America, recovery, COVID, unemployment numbers, job growth. So even though there is obviously like always a very big argument to be made about how much you would gain from trade in terms of job growth and so forth, that is not what they care about right now. Right now, they really just care about what is happening in America, more or less, and maybe also about US-China, because that has been a big win for the Trump administration. So we're focusing on evaluating phase one deal. So just really briefly touching upon what I see the four kind of different scenarios ranging from the good to the bad to the ugly. Or no, actually, there is no real bad, it's just neutral. But the dream outcome, I think, would be a mini trade deal, as Commissioner Hogan and Commission President von der Leyen had already alluded to, which would be a big win for Trump ahead of the elections and would be a positive record. But it is just unlikely, as Mariana, I believe, has mentioned, and also Andreas, a deal that doesn't address agriculture is just not in the cards. So I just can't see it happening. A positive outcome would still be if we were to get to something like a transatlantic trade detente, which for me would be a settlement of the Boeing Airbus dispute. And in my view, this is a really big and easy win ahead of the election. So a girl can dream. I really hope that this could be something that happens, but it really depends on, and we've seen some positive developments there in the past two weeks on the Airbus Boeing front where Lighthizer did not raise tariffs. So there has been some sort of an olive branch, but it really depends on timing. Once the EU has a number for their retaliation, the US is more likely to agree to some kind of negotiation, but only if it is seen as beneficial to the US. Trump will not go for something that is really just mediocre compromise ahead of the elections. And then the neutral one is just kicking the can down the road until after the election option, which is, I think, pretty likely and easy to achieve, but still optimistic. And then the last one is obviously the worst case scenario, the full escalation. And I like to call it the Mexican standoff, because that would just mean that everybody is pointing guns in forms of tariffs and counter tariffs at each other. So full escalation of Boeing Airbus dispute, maybe an escalation on the digital tax front. That's really interesting to think about those four scenarios. And then the elections happen. Would even under a second Trump administration, would things be notably different? Or would Trump's strategy of sort of wielding the threat of tariffs to get his way at the negotiating table, would that continue? And perhaps if Biden wins, 
given that Biden was vice president in an administration that tried to negotiate TTIP, would he put TTIP back on the table? Marianne, what happens after January, you think? Well, I think you're certainly right that under a second term Trump presidency, we would see a doubling down on the kind of America first trade policy agenda. The Biden administration, you know, I think we would certainly see trade in general and the transatlantic trade relationship in particular less fraught, more stable. I think there would be a rolling back of President Trump's tariffs and steel and aluminum. That continued threat of the automobile tariffs would be removed. But I think nonetheless, reviving TTIP is very unlikely. Those talks were in trouble even before President Trump took office. Nonetheless, Biden could pick up the negotiations that the current administration has launched on those much more limited talks. I think that could happen soon. Progress could be made before Trade Promotion Authority expires in July of next year. But I think more general, the really important part is, you know, how to rebuild the bilateral transatlantic trade and investment relationship while also working towards fixing the multilateral trade system. And I think those two things have to work in tandem and will require really careful management, even of areas where the U.S. and European Union, but also the U.K. diverge. And here again, those transatlantic differences over the digital services taxes need to be isolated. I think achieving those talks at the OECD um, you know, are challenging, but that could really be another area where if the U.S. recommits to negotiations and progress is possible. To me, the larger question really is also about what will Biden ask of its European partners and in what form would the EU and others be willing um, to, for example, confront China more vigorously and risk their own commercial ties? You know, might the United States, for example, ask the Europeans to strengthen their export control regime? Or would there be, you know, increased scrutiny on transparency and accountability of Chinese firms that are listed on European stock exchanges, for example? I think there's going to be, you know, much more looking at what are underexplored policy arenas. I guess very much related to that is also the question to what extent a Biden presidency would really want to and be able to look into new trade agreements early on. I think, um, as Marie mentioned, there is a focus right now on dealing with the domestic issues, but also, you know, the fallout from COVID. So I think um, Biden would very much focus on investing in the U.S. domestically and making sure that the U.S. workforce is able to compete globally before entering into any new trade agreements. And I think very much what we saw with President Obama when he entered office in 2009 amidst the Great Recession, I don't really think that trade negotiations would be much of a priority at the outset of a Biden administration. I wonder, if I might jump in there, if Biden would be elected, and this is a huge if, but if so, what concept of leadership would he have? I mean, if, if I'm right, one of the underlying ideas is to reestablish the U.S. as leader of the former free world, reestablish leadership. And what kind of leadership is that? And a leader which is in pursuit of his own interest is looking after the one he's leading to make them have a decent life, to make their life easier? Or is it a confrontational one where you can't try to impose... Uh, power and force. And the hope would be that this is kind of a more collaborative approach to leadership. 
to reestablish alliances and to reestablish the idea of give and take, which would be demanding for Europe and for Germany maybe especially, but uh, which could lead to new results and to a, a, a new force and strength of uh, alliance. And I wouldn't give up hope that this wouldn't be possible, that stronger impetus than during Obama government kind of uh, established this link or reestablished this link. At least I would hope so. But I think there's also the element of the kind of post-COVID era that we're in, where both the US and the EU want to diversify supply chains away from China. So, you know, being an optimist, you could make the case that there is, you know, an argument to be made for reinvigorating the US and EU trade relationship. And that could also be an opportunity to create joint strategic reserves, for example, to respond to supply chain disruptions. Um, the European Union does very much seem open to this idea of joint reserves. And even the current U.S. government has said that it's considering creating an economic prosperity network. But again, there the risk is that in the current environment where we have so many transatlantic frictions that does undermine trust and you know those joint efforts don't really get off the ground. But again, I think there is renewed hope for strengthening transatlantic supply chains for the post-COVID world. I agree. That's very interesting. I think it's also a very important contribution, just what the potentials for transatlantic trade cooperation are in a post-COVID or in a COVID environment. There's one final question which I want to pose to you, which is, what is the strategy from the EU side if Trump wins? Marie, by all means, go ahead and give us your thoughts from Washington. I think that I agree with a lot of the points that Andreas and Mariana have made. And it is important to keep in mind that no matter who wins, we're never going back to the pre-Trump era. There are a lot of items like being tough on China, strong economic nationalism, recovery from the pandemic, and disagreement on including agriculture and public procurement in any kind of trade agreements with the EU. Those will be here to stay for either Trump or Biden. And I think it is important to also rethink the transatlantic trade narrative a little bit, moving away from that it should be easy to reach an agreement there, because I feel it's an outdated narrative. As we've discovered, even though it makes a lot of sense economically and culturally, it is extremely hard to get to an agreement just because they are already very similar. With that being said, you asked about the outlook for transatlantic relations under a second round of Trump. I just don't think that we will see many changes in the second round. A re-elected Trump would likely feel emboldened to double down on his America first instincts, including possibly tearing down multilateral institutions like NATO or the WTO. From the European side, there would be growing anti-Americanism and no trust he won't diverge from his general trade strategy, focusing on imbalances. He will never cease to be the tariff man. So tariffs would continue to be an important part of his trade strategy. And we can debate if that is makes sense or not, but that's a different kind of conversation. He regards trade as a zero-sum game, and he believes in threats. So negotiation by threat and the tendency to disrupt first and negotiate later. So he loves the use of excess leverage. He loves the tendency to disrupt and bring everybody in a flurry and then hopefully, you know, get them to the table to negotiate. And that doesn't quite work with the European Union. And I think the European Union has changed quite a bit 
um, when I look at them from Washington, it is really that there has been coming out some stronger language, some stronger trade tools to counter the United States. So they are kind of preparing for the scenario of a second term for Trump. And we can unfortunately expect the relationship to deteriorate and to be largely transactional. If we look at the U.S. negotiating mandates from 2019, I think that's what we will be looking at for a second Trump term too, where the focus is on improving U.S. trade balances and reducing the trade deficit and to achieve a comprehensive market access for U.S. agricultural goods in the EU. And that is just something that can't be achieved. The only thing I would say playing devil's advocate here is there is a potential light at the end of the tunnel if you look at it from the point of view that in a second term, Trump would actually not have to secure re-election. So he could potentially go towards a more compromise-heavy attitude or at least be open to some sorts of compromises, for example, with Airbus, Boeing or other things. What could Europe do? Europe can continue to compartmentalize relation with the United States, work on things that they can work together on, like China and the trilateral dialogue, engage more with members of Congress specifically, as they have done in the recent past, and also governors and mayors around the country like they have done in the area of climate change. We've seen a huge movement there of European cities and countries talking to governors and mayors around the country. Interesting. It's a kind of a glass half empty uh, perspective, I have to say, because it seems like the possibilities of proving the relationship are that much more apparent if a new administration comes in. But that might well be um, the reality that the EU should be thinking about. Unfortunately, we're slowly running out of time. If there's anything that Marianne or Andreas are really dying to chip in, by all means do so. The only element to talk about is, again, regardless of whether it's Trump or Biden, it will be shaped by the domestic environment in the United States and building domestic support. It is quite paradox that even though Americans' view of trade in general are increasingly positive, that does not translate necessarily into pro-free trade stance by either the Republican or Democratic Party. And I think, again, that potentially, you know, could change and provide some hope. But for the time being, the kind of breakdown of the pro-free trade consensus is something that either Biden or Trump can very much play on. And I think that's a useful element to sound off on, because it also resonates with what we're seeing in Europe. Exactly. In the United States, there is perhaps a pro-free trade consensus among the citizenry, but there's a disconnect at the political top. Whereas in Europe, what we're also seeing is that citizens are becoming much more skeptical about free trade and are asking much more of the commission or national governments to impose restrictions, be they environmental restrictions or sustainability benchmarks or stronger regulations or taxation on American tech enterprises. And so what we may well be heading towards is a much more frictious transatlantic trade environment, not because there's tariff man here or there's a a, a zealous uh, European commission over there, but because citizenry is expecting different things of the trade agenda. One additional comment, and there will be another podcast on also the the public opinion around trade, but there's one thing we learned from asking people that once the pressure was rising against free trade and global trade, at least 
parts of the Europeans, Germans, the confidence in global trade was rising. So pressure from the outside, confidence was rising. When we had the TTIP discussion, the opposite was the case. So there was the idea that global trade was imposed on people and people said, we don't want that. Now, since we have to, we can watch what happens with, with Trump, people say, well, we do better have it. This is something we might uh, take the chance to, to build on. The same as in America, though. I mean, 83% of Americans think, when asked in 2019, that international trade is good for American companies. 25 percentage points increase from when they were last asked in 2016. And both the Democratic views on trade and the Republican views on trade were up considerably in 2019. The question is, how is the pandemic going to change that view when we ask them again this year or next year? Because ultimately, what happens in a crisis that everybody is pulling up the drawbridge? I think what is important, especially with regard to China, are the huge differences within the European Union uh, with regard to, the, to this individual position uh, towards China. So uh, I mentioned Germany. Germany, with this uh, car industry, is very much depending. Italy, Greece, they are part, basically part of the Belgian Road Initiative, so they are depending. Uh, France uh, has has problems with the U.S., so this is there are very very complex positions within the European Union, and to come to a common political position it will be really really hard. Thank you very much, Andreas, Marianne, and Marie, for this very interesting conversation on the U.S.-EU trade relationship. And although we discussed a host of issues broader than just the pandemic and how it impacts the trade relationship, I thought it was very informative, somewhat depressing as well, because as we know, this is one of the most important bilateral trading relationships out there, and it's fraught with trouble, or as Marie said, the clouds are building. And it's going to be a topic that we will continue to follow within the context of the AIG Global Trade Series 2020. So please stay tuned for this and other conversations we're going to be having. With that, thank you very much again to our three experts, Marianne Schneider-Petzinger from Chatham House, Marie Kasparek from Georgetown University, and Andreas Esche from the Bertelsmann Stiftung. The AIG Global Trade Series is an international partnership between AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and interviews from partners in the Global Trade Series and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020.